been encouraged just from singing with you. Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 2. As we come to the text tonight in John 2, we don't have to guess why John wrote what he wrote. Because he told us in John 20, 30 and 31, John wrote, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. So the things that John wrote, specifically he wrote so that we would believe Jesus is the Messiah, knowing that when we believe Jesus is the Messiah, we will have eternal life. Well, John begins his gospel um, in chapter 1, the first 18 verses, and He introduces Jesus to us as the Word, God's ultimate self-disclosure in the person of his Son. And he packs many, many things into these 18 verses, but in brief, we learn that the Word is eternal. He's preexistent. He's the creator of everything that has been created. He is life and light. The Word became flesh and blood, or human The Word shares the same glory as the Father. The Word is full of grace and truth. The Word is now at the Father's side, and He he reveals the Father. And ultimately, we find out that the Word is Jesus. Well, last time we were in the Gospel of John, we looked at chapter 1, verses 19 through 51. And we looked at the testimony of John the Baptist, and we also looked at the lives of the first disciples who followed Jesus, and both John the Baptist and those disciples point us to the fact that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, and that we should follow him. Well, today in in chapter 2, we're going to be looking at two events. We're going to be looking at what John calls the first sign, where Jesus turned water into wine, and then we're also going to look at Jesus cleansing the temple And hopefully, as we we walk through these two events, we'll understand not only what happened, but the significance of what happened and what we're supposed to take away from it. So let's start in chapter 2 with the first event. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. So interesting start to our story here is Jesus and his disciples and his mother, they've all been invited to this wedding. Um, We need to know a little bit about what a Jewish wedding would have been like to probably really understand this and grasp this. A wedding feast could last as long as a week. So it's quite a celebration, and the, the groom is responsible for, for the food and drink at the wedding. And we, we actually see that a little bit in verses 9 and 10, where, you know, the chief servant's going to the groom, and he's like, well, why did you hold out the best stuff? Like, this should have been first. He, see, the groom was responsible for all this. So that, that, that is the backdrop here of this wedding. Secondly... This, this would have been a huge embarrassment for something like this to happen at a wedding feast. You've gathered all of your friends and neighbors and relatives. They've come for this huge celebration that's going to last a week. 
and they've run out of wine. And, and even, it even goes beyond just embarrassment. I mean, this was a shame society. The, the humiliation would have been real. And even beyond the shame and embarrassment and humiliation, there's even the possibility that the groom could be liable for lawsuit from relatives of the bride for failing to adequately provide for this feast. So this is a really big deal. Well, what's, what's Jesus' mom supposed to do? We, we don't know anything about her relationship to the ones getting married here. Um, you know, some people think, well, maybe she was responsible for all the food and drink. Probably not. Um, but for some reason, she wants to help. And who, who to go to other than your son, Jesus, right? So, of course, she goes up to Jesus and says, they don't have any wine. Now, Jesus' response is probably about the opposite of what you would expect from a good son, right? Um, you know, your mom comes up to you and says they, they don't have something, they need something. You would expect Jesus to say, don't worry about it, mom, I'll take care of it. I've got this. You, you would expect something, right? Something positive. I mean, his mom's coming to him, and yet Jesus' response is shocking. In verse 4, he says, What is this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Now, there's a lot in this verse that I want to talk about because it sounds terrible. (laughs) To be honest with you, it sounds terrible. But first, let's focus on the latter part of the verse where Jesus gives his reason for, for brushing back his mom. She comes to him and he brushes her off a little bit. And, and he ultimately is saying, well, my hour has not yet come. So let's, let's explore that just a little bit. What is this hour that has not come? And this is going to come up several times in the Gospel of John where Jesus will say, my hour has not yet come. Or when we get there, my hour has come. All right, so he defines it for us. And let's go ahead and take a look at some of those. If you'll flip over to John chapter 7. Verse 30, Jesus is, is uh, speaking, and as often happens when he's speaking in the temple, people get upset. So verse 30, then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So the people get upset. They want to do something to Jesus, but they can't. It's, his hour has not yet come. Or turn over to the next chapter, John 8, verse 20, very similar He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple complex, but no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus is protected from those who want to hurt him because his hour has not yet come. So I don't know if that's an hour you want to get to, right? But as we look, turn over to John chapter 12, and we'll get to where his hour has come. John chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus replied to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But what is he really speaking of when he says for the Son of Man to be glorified? It's for him to be lifted up on a cross and be crucified, to be the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that is why I came to this hour. So he's wrestling with it. 
this hour. So the hour, we're kind of getting the idea now, the hour that Jesus is talking about is his death on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. It's, it's, it's going to be both a very terrible thing and a very awesome thing because his death is going to be what gives us life, results in giving us life as he is the sacrifice for sins. Let's look at the last one here in John chapter 17. Now, there, there are others. We're just going through this briefly just to get an idea. John 17, 1, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. So it's, it's this idea, this hour is the, it's the hour where Jesus is going to be lifted up on a cross. He's going to be crucified. And yet he's also going to be exalted and glorified as he hangs there and he pays for the sins of the world in his body, on his body. Let's go back to John chapter 2. So Jesus' reason is, as we get back to John 2 verse 4, is he is single-focused, single-minded now about, I am all about the Father's will. I am here to do my Father's business. And any other relationship is, is secondary is probably putting it lightly, because I am all about this. It's all about what the Father has planned for me. And my life is pointing to this hour. And everything I'm going to do is pointing to this hour that has not yet come. And so Jesus has an agenda in his life. It's to do the Father's will. So hopefully that softens it a little bit as you think about his response. Secondly, I, I would like to say as far as his response... That Jesus, it's not nearly as rude and abrupt as you would think by reading the English translation. He actually addresses his mother politely, courteously. Um, it's, there's not a good English equivalent to what he's calling her. Because what he's not calling her is he's not calling her mother. So there's a huge break here. He's, their relationship is changing. The mother-son relationship is changing. Mary is going to have to accept Jesus as her Messiah, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb who takes away her sin, as her Savior. That relationship is going to have to change. It's not going to continue on in the normal mother-son relationship. So Jesus is distancing himself from his mother, And he's backing off of that mother-son relationship and any prerogative that she would have as as his mother and all that she's done for him for all of these years in caring for him and in raising him. And yet that's all going to be put aside for a little bit here. It's going to change. So Jesus is changing what's happening here. He is not addressing her as mother. But it's not as cold as when it reads, what is this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Um, I don't know what your translations say. You know, the, the commentaries I looked at, probably the best polite translation we could come up with, except it doesn't work, as you'll see, is children in the South are raised to say, yes, ma'am. It's a polite term, right? You're saying, yes, ma'am. The problem with putting that in here is that a child would say, yes, ma'am, to his mother, and it's completely appropriate. And, and really what Jesus is doing here is a stark difference, that he is not associating with her as mother. 
he's associating with her as, as he would any other woman in, in addressing her politely and courteously. All right, so hopefully, hopefully that's understandable, but this is a shocking, shocking response in verse 4. His mom comes to him, and he kind of brushes her back. But Mary's response to this is amazing, is absolutely amazing. Look at verse 5. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. She's not, she's not coming to him as her son with any expectation that, hey, you're my son. You do what I tell you. She's just leaving it with him. She trusts him. She knows he's going to do the right thing. And she doesn't know what the outcome is going to be, but she's content with whatever it is. So she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Verse 6. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. So Jesus gives an answer where it seems like he's not going to do anything to help. That's what you would think from verse 4. Verse 5, Jesus, or Jesus' mother leaves it with him. She's content to leave it in his hands, regardless of what he does. And Jesus, sure enough, Jesus does do something about it. That's what we would expect, right? He's going to do something about it. So these six stone water jars, these things are huge. 20 to 30 gallons, six of them, they're for Jewish purification. Most likely, these things have been set up and they're all arranged here for this this huge wedding feast, and, and they would have been used to ritually cleanse the, the hands of the guests who there, are there in attendance at the wedding, possibly also to ritually cleanse the utensils that would be used for the wedding. But these jars have been put there for the purpose of purification. And obviously they've been used because Jesus is now filling them up again to the brim. So Jesus tells the servants, fill them up to the brim. The servants obey. Next command, take some to the chief servant. The servants obey. So they do exactly what Jesus says to do. Verse 9. When the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told them, everybody sets out the fine wine first. Then, after people have drunk freely, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. So he calls in, he calls in the, the groom, and he's like, you've been holding out on me. We should have served this first. Well, the chief servant doesn't know where it came from. But the, but the servants know where this came from. The disciples know where it came from. And it's interesting that it tells us right there in verse 9 that this miracle has occurred, that it has become wine. This water has become wine. Jesus' instructions were simple. He, he didn't really do anything other than ask them to transfer water from container to container, and it transformed. So they go and draw water from a well, put it in the stone jars, then they take the water from the stone jars, and they take it to the chief servant, and somewhere along the way, by the time he gets to the chief servant, it's wine. So Jesus has performed a miracle. It's a miracle. And 
And two things I would note from this miracle, and I'm, I'm not usually into alliteration at all, but I like to be corny every now and then. Well, probably lots of times I like to be corny. So, so this, this miracle, the, the wine that Jesus has provided, it is both abundant and it's awesome. I mean, it is the best wine and there is lots of it. So Jesus in providing has provided an abundance and he has provided them with some awesome wine. So what's the result of what's happened here? Verse 11. Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. John calls this the first sign. Now, now a sign is, is a tremendous display of power that points to a larger reality. So it's showing you something else. And what it's showing in this case is Jesus did this amazing miracle. And what it's pointing to is that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the sign. All right? So a sign is not just a miracle. It's not just a great work. It's, it's pointing to something beyond. It's showing the significance of what happened. And interestingly enough, John wrote his gospel for the, the thing he wrote about, why he wrote about it. That's exactly what happened with his disciples. They saw the sign and they believed. That's what John wants from us. We're supposed to see this sign this tremendous miracle that Jesus did. And we're supposed to believe he is the Messiah. It's interesting, too, in verse 11, that it talks about he displayed his glory. Now, we saw in John chapter 1 that Jesus shares the, the Father's glory. And here, it's, it's displayed in part. With this miracle, he displays his glory, and the disciples get it, and they believe in him. Exactly the way it was intended. Verse 12 kind of acts as a transition as we move on to the next event. So in verse 12, we see, After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they stayed there only a few days. Well, why only a few days? I think our answer is verse 13. The Jewish Passover was near. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now I want to talk about this Jewish Passover for just a little bit. The Passover is a big deal in Jewish life. It's one of the annual celebrations where people would come from all around, from great distances to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover feast. And that's exactly what Jesus and his disciples are doing. They don't live in Jerusalem, but they're going to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And people would have come from all around. And Jerusalem would have just been swarming with people, people everywhere, to celebrate this feast. And we find something significant happens while Jesus is there for this Jewish Passover. Verse 14. In the temple complex, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. And he also found the money changers sitting there. 
After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. What is Jesus' objection? You know, all of these people have come and they need to make sacrifices. They need to pay their temple tax. And if you came from a long distance, it would not be convenient to bring your sacrifice with you. It would be much easier to purchase it when you get there. And if you come from a far distance and you don't have the right coins, you can't pay the temple tax because they only took one kind of coin. So it's very understandable that you would need people to sell animals for sacrifices and you would need people to change out money for the right coins so that the temple tax could be paid. But Jesus' objection seems to be where they are doing it. They are doing it in his father's house, and he takes it very personally. He says, this is my father's house. He's he's protective of the temple. The, The temple is supposed to be a place of worship and prayer and instruction and sacrifice, not a marketplace. So Jesus comes in, puts together a whip, drives out the animals, drives out the money changers, creates an uproar. Now, it wouldn't have been such a big uproar that the Roman soldiers would have found it necessary to come in and and put this thing down quietly. So it wasn't that big of an uproar, but it would have been quite upsetting to do what Jesus did. And it's it's amazing, really... um, the disciples' response to it. Um, If you look in verse 17, and his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The disciples' response to what Jesus just did, they connect it to scripture, and then they go to that scripture and see that it's pointing to Jesus as Messiah. You see, what Jesus has done is a Messiah-like action, that he would come into the temple and, 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 and speak authoritatively there. I mean, who, who is he to, to tell these people to get out? Well, he's the Messiah, all right? This is his father. Now, John places the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, right here in John 2, The Synoptic Gospels place it at the end of Jesus' public ministry. By Synoptic Gospels, I mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I think, just looking at them, I think there are two different cleansings of the temple. Um, Both in the Synoptic Gospels, it seems like they are speaking chronologically. And John here certainly seems to be speaking chronologically. He's been talking about this day, this happened, and then the next day, and the next day, and the third day. And then they, they went to Capernaum for a few days, and then they went to Jerusalem because the, the Passover feast was near. I mean, John seems to be speaking very sequentially as well. So my conclusion is there probably are two cleansings of the temple. And, and there are differences in the accounts, which would be understandable with two different events. And really the response to those cleansings is different, as we'll see in a moment. So I do take this to be two different response, two different cleansings of the temple. Look at the the Jewish leader's response in verse 18. 
So the Jews replied to him, What sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this sanctuary, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This sanctuary took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? So the Jewish leaders, it's really amazing their response here, which is quite a bit different from, the, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They, they don't really seem to have a problem with what Jesus did, as if they all understand that this is not appropriate for this to be taking place on the temple grounds. And so they don't, in no way do they, do they go against what Jesus has done. They simply question his authority. And so what do Jews do? They ask for a sign. All right, they ask Jesus for a sign to show he has the authority to do what he just did. Now, it's, it's interesting in the Gospels, it doesn't normally go well when people ask Jesus for a sign, when people demand a sign. Jesus doesn't do signs on demand. Um, he, we answer to him. He doesn't answer to us. He is Lord, not us. So it doesn't normally go well when people demand a sign, but Jesus actually is very gracious here to give them a sign, an ingenious sign, as we'll see in a moment. So what is this sign? Destroy this sanctuary, and I will raise it up in three days. You know, that just kind of put an end to it right there. Because for them, at this point, that is an impossible sign. They are not about to destroy the temple to see if Jesus can raise it up in three days. It took 46 years to build. So they, they just have to be content with what Jesus said. And, well, they can't really test him on that sign at this point. So it's a great sign from Jesus. He gave them a sign, but they're, they're not going to act on that. So it kind of ends the discussion right there. Ironically, Jesus is talking about something else. So look at verse 21. He was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So ironically, the sign really does come true. It really is a sign. They really do destroy his sanctuary, his body. And he really does raise it up in three days. He gave them the sign. And it's true. It's real. He is the Messiah. He has the authority to do this in the temple. But we won't know that until a few years later. But it's just, to me, the irony here that he gives them this impossible sign. They, they can't act on it. But guess what? Yeah, ultimately they do act on it. And so does he. He proves he has the authority. Verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. More than two years later, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, his disciples remember what he said right here at the temple. They remember it, and they believe. Sign fulfilled. It really is a sign. So once again, we have this, these signs. Now, John calls the turning of the water into wine, the first sign, and he's going to call something else the second sign. But he does give a sign here. And because we're standing on this side of the cross and all that's happened with Jesus' resurrection and when John is writing, we know that this sign is fulfilled as well. 
So our response should still be the same as the disciples, that we should remember that Jesus said this would happen, and we should believe he's the Messiah. He is who he says he is. Verses 23 through 25 end this chapter, and it's, it's kind of a sad ending. Um, verse 23. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So many are going to follow Jesus because of the miracles, but they don't have genuine faith. And Jesus knows their hearts, and he's not going to entrust himself to them. You know, this, this, this statement here that he knew what was in man, verse 25, that's an amazing statement. You know, we talked, we, we already uh, made a reference in verse 11 when, when Jesus displayed his glory. And we talked about how this goes back to he shares glory with the Father. He's equal with the Father. Same type of deity language here that he knows what is in man. If you turn over to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, we're going to find that God alone knows the heart of every man. 1 Kings chapter 8. It, the, where he states that is verse 39, but we're going to start in verse 38. And I'm having a hard time finding it because sometimes it's hard to do two things at once. First Kings chapter 8, verse um, 38. This is Solomon's prayer as the temple is dedicated he says, whatever prayer or petition anyone from your people Israel might have, each man knowing his own afflictions and spreading out his hands toward this temple, may you hear in heaven your dwelling place, and may you forgive, act, and repay the man according to all his ways, since you know his heart. For you alone know every human heart. God knows every human heart. Jesus knows every human heart. Jesus is God. Now, I, I want to I explore this just a little bit more, this idea of the difference between genuine faith and faith that is not genuine. And I think we see it laid out for us a little bit more in John chapter 6. If you turn over to John chapter 6, verse 26 is where we'll start. Jesus kind of explains this. John 6, verse 26, Jesus answered, by the way, this, this, this here is in the context of the fourth sign, which is Jesus feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. Okay, that's the context of what we're about to, to read here. Jesus answered in verse 26, I assure you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Verse 29, Jesus replied, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. 
Verse 30. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? They asked. What are you going to perform? You see, they keep asking for a sign because they don't get it. They see the miracles, but all they're grasping from it is, I just got a meal. I feel better. I can walk now. I can see now. Jesus healed me. It's, they're seeing the power, but they're not seeing the reality behind it that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. Come in the flesh as the Lamb of God to take away sin. So you can show them sign after sign after sign, and they still don't get it. Their eyes are blinded to spiritual truth. They need to be born of the Spirit. The things of the Spirit are spiritually understood. So there's, there's a significant difference between the faith that we see from the disciples when they see the signs and believe, and all these other people, these crowds, who see the miracles, they see the signs, but they don't get it. They're just looking for the next meal. F.F. F. Bruce made a statement on this text that I, I think it's worth reading to you guys. So it's, it's somewhat long, but if you'll hang in there, I think it's worth reading. As we, as I just really want us to think about this difference in faith. Quote, Jesus made a clear distinction between those who were superficially impressed because they saw the bare signs and those who penetrated beneath the surface and grasped the truth that was signified by the signs. Nicodemus came to positive conclusions about Jesus through seeing the signs which he performed. But he was slow to appreciate their spiritual inwardness. There are two levels of believing in Jesus' name. That spoken in John 1.12, which carries with it the authority to become God's children, and that spoken of here. The former level involves unreserved personal commitment, the practical acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord, but it will not be attained as long as we see the signs, but see not him. We have to see Jesus, who Jesus is. So as we close tonight, three applications I want to draw out. I think, I think the first one is the most obvious one, and it's, it's probably the most important one. And, and that is that from studying this passage, after seeing these signs, we should respond in faith. We should believe in Jesus and follow him, just like his disciples did. We won't be perfect and we will fail him many times, but we must continue to follow Jesus. So my first question tonight would be, are you following Jesus? Are you following Jesus? The second application I would like to, my, like to make tonight is that, you know, we all have problems. We all have sin issues. We all have needs. And the best thing we can do, I think, is to be like Mary and turn to Jesus and trust him with it. We don't know what the outcome is going to be, but we can trust Jesus and leave the outcome with him, that he will do what's best, that he will do what's right. Can we trust Jesus the way that Mary did when she had a need? So that would be my second application tonight. Come to Jesus with your problems.
The third application is, I, I think it's amazing. You know, we live in this, I guess some would call it a microwave society where we want everything to happen immediately, and that's not really how it, things work. And that's really not how God works. God has his own timetable. And I find it amazing that Jesus can teach his disciples something right here in this cleansing of the temple. And more than two years later, they're finally going to grasp the significance of what he told them. And so my appeal with the third application would be to be faithful in taking in the word of God. Hopefully you're taking it in on a regular basis and really a heavy dose. I mean, if, if you're reading the word on your own, if you're, if you're gathering with the body and studying the word, we hear the word how many times in a week? And I would just say, keep taking it in, keep taking it in and let the word change you. You know, we're, we're really slow people sometimes. We don't, we don't always learn things the first time we hear them. We, we don't always catch the significance the first time we hear something. But you know what? We can listen to God's word, and God, over time, will take that word, and he will change us. He will use his spirit to show us the significance of what his word says. And, you know, we might look back after a lifetime, and we might see how significantly someone has changed. And yet, in the day by day, it's slow and steady and maybe indiscernible. So I would just encourage us that we need to keep coming to the word and God will change us through his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word and we thank you for Jesus, our Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who gives us eternal life. Father, we thank you for John sharing with us these signs to point us to Jesus, to understand who he is. Father, I pray that everyone in this room will grasp the significance of who Jesus is and will trust him and follow him. Father, we're so thankful that you've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. So we praise you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together without accompaniment. I stand.